0: We're on a small farm that's within a larger horticultural area in the city suburbs of Cape Town.
1: So it's a real big lie that actually industrial farming is feeding the world. It's not feeding the world. Actually, small-scale farmers are feeding the world. In fact, 70% 70 of Africa's food comes from small-scale African
0: farmers. That's Nazir Sonde. He is a farmer and activist.
2: So... Table Mountain, around five million years ago, used to be an island, right?
0: And that's Zion Khan, researcher and seed librarian. Cape Town, with its famous mountain, is along the southern edge of Africa.
2: For those who have never visited the Cape, you are in a space where Table Mountain, with well, the whole mountain range, it kind of fits into the sea immediately. And then from the peninsula that runs up to the north into another mountainscape. And between them, it's very flat land. This all used to be underwater.
0: And it's this flatland called the Cape Flats where Nazir farms in the Felipe Horticultural Area or the PHA.
2: In our area
1: supplies the city with over 200,000 tons of vegetables per annum. And our struggle via small-scale farming is to double that.
0: 200,000 tons of vegetables a year. That's basically the weight of two very large cruise liners or 40,000 African bush elephants.
3: Nazir's water story plays out under a unique set of circumstances. The PHA is basically surrounded by the city and is constantly being squeezed in by human development.
1: And so over, over the years, the farming area has shrunk to what we had at the moment, which is a 3,000-acre farming area surrounded by suburbs the city. So to the north of us is Manenberg and Hannevar Park, to the east of us is Mitchell's Plain, towards the west is a River and grassy park, and towards the south is Salmontain and the coastline. And we can them over the years for sandwich into this area and this is the area that we supply in the city with a lot of its vegetables.
0: Gang activity is rife on the Cape Flat suburbs, which is a product of history and inequality. Cape Town is now the most violent city in Africa, according to 2019 crime stats, although, of course, many would know it as a world designed capital and a glamorous tourist destination.
3: But there's more to this story. The Philippi Horticultural Area is also situated bang on top of Cape Town's biggest aquifer, an ancient underground water system. This in a city that made world headlines in twenty seventeen for almost having to switch off the taps during its worst drought in over a century. All of these things have shaped the work of the PHA.
1: We don't have a choice that whether we want to be in the struggle or not, right? That's the first thing. But there's no choice for us here. We are engaged in a struggle. <laughs>
0: This podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment, and the people working tirelessly to protect it. I'm Gugule Tumtlungu. As always, I'm joined by Sekwetlane Pamodi, and this is For Water For Life the podcast series that tells the extraordinary water stories of ordinary people who've made it their life's mission to preserve, purify, and protect the water supply where we live, in South Africa. A drone view of the Philippi Horticultural Area shows rolling croplands with Table Mountain in the distance. They're dotted with dams of water and industrial sprinklers shooting out their plumes. Interspersed are smaller farming areas. On the road, a horse cart passes. A sign reads, small farm growing here. Cauliflowers grow alongside tomatoes, carrots, beetroot, sunflowers, and chili peppers. 48 types of vegetables are grown here. From the
1: first stage of our struggle, we had to understand who the community is. And we got together as a community and said, look, we, as a community of this Philip agriculture area, the white farmers, the emerging farmers, the landowners, the informal settlement dwellers, the, the farm workers, we feel this area is important to protect.
3: The PHA employs 6,000 farm workers and runs education and social justice programmes. Their food and farming campaign is run by Nazir. Inside its farmland headquarters, the walls are adorned with posters from protests. Save our future, save our aquifer. Your food... Your farmers, they read. Resistance is fertile. Nazir was born around the corner from here in 1961. But in 1963, his family were forced to leave because of the Apartheid Group Areas Act. In 1991, he returned and bought a hectare of land to farm.
1: The campaign was set up in 2013 to protect uh, our farming area from urban development encroachment. The second part of our struggle was just how to protect the land and engage in all the participation around how to, to do this.
3: Backed by 33 civil society organizations, the PHA has just won a landmark court case against housing developers, the city of Cape Town, and the provincial government. Veggies versus Homes read the TV news ticker tape, but it wasn't that simple.
1: We now know it as urban Sproul, but actually urban Sproul has its roots in our country, in land possession, And in party spatial planning, all these people were moved out of the city and relegated to the outskirts of the city. And so in the outskirts, it's where your farming takes place. And we are saying as a campaign, hello, hang on, we can have development, but it should address our spatial inequalities of the past. And so therefore, housing development, social housing in particular, need to be developed in the city where there is land available. We're saying, no, sorry, Our right to food is an equal right to our right to housing. And the two rights cannot collide. They need to live next to each other and complement each other. And so we are saying housing needs to happen in the city where there's infrastructure available, with close to amenities, close to jobs, opportunities. And we are saying not one acre are you going to take your heating up the city more and more and more Uh, creating droughts because you're paving over the farmlands, which is actually where your water is out in the soil, and so on and so forth. So that took the bulk of our struggle in the second phase. In the third phase of our struggle, we're now looking at seeing, okay, now we are almost there. We are almost there in fully protecting our farming area. How are we going to use the land now to place farmers onto the land for them to become self-sufficient. And part of that is how can we take farm workers who have been evicted off the land, who have been unemployed because of the industrial farming model where farm workers have been replaced by machines, because who are best to produce our food are those who are engaged in the soil, who are engaged in the land, and those are the farm workers.
0: do this. And thanks to the abundance of water there, the PAJ has opted to return to more indigenous farming methods, encouraging small-scale, regenerative, polyculture farming, which is where multiple crops grow together. This is opposed to monoculture farming, where just one type of crop is grown, often industrially. But Nazir and Zayan explain it better by going back in time
2: like I say, the old ancient uh, water systems they've been there for millions of years but with understanding of water and the cyclical nature of water is something that was never lost on indigenous peoples or first nations peoples It's into something that has always been very much a part of who people have been in this area
1: Well, you know, before colonialism and land disposition took place in in the city, in the Cape, the Khoi and San communities were using a lot of the land around the city. And they had livestock, and they used the land around them for grazing, and they used medicinal plants for for medicine and for food. And they traded with the passing ships coming around from Europe. Our area has developed into a, a market garden area in which the German settlers who came to our coast in 1865 and they set up these uh, market gardens. So, so what happened was over the years, the German farmer system became more and more a monoculture kind of production system. And in this monoculture production system, which is producing a lot of the city's vegetables. But the problem was the way that those vegetables are produced is through heavy application of fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, and this is polluting the aquifer that they are producing us cheap food, and so therefore we are indebted to them, and we keep on with that model, because it's a sound model, I want to debunk that. Because actually what's happening is that through this monoculture industrial farming in our area, and it applies to all kinds of farming as well, is that the cost of the food is being externalized. So what has been externalized? The pollution of the water has been externalised. The journey that this food travels across countries, across borders, across provinces, that cost is externalised to the climate, right? And that's causing climate change. So all these costs, these costs are not cheap food. This is very, very expensive
3: food. The hectare of land Nazir farms is a model of a different way of doing things when it comes to farming, biodiversity and water.
1: We're looking to see how our ancestors farm and are trying to apply those practices to our farming system. So on our farm, we are modeling diversity of crops, which is covers the vegetable crops, medicinal herbs, flowers. We call it the polyculture system, where every farm is seen as an ecosystem that is in tune and, and living in the bigger ecosystem and supports the ecosystem. We don't use any pesticides, herbicides, insecticides. And what we have seen over the last couple of years is an abundance of life returning to the soil and to the environment. We have lots of different types of mushrooms, different types of insects, abundance of bees, and so on on the farm. Because we are staying away from all these polluting activities. Right? We need to grow some food together with some of our other ornamental indigenous plants. Because that's how nature operates. It's not only about ornamental plants. It's about food to consume as humans, but also food that the birds and the bees can have access to, to increase diversity, biodiversity. Uh, And so it's an integrated system that we seem to have lost to this monoculture thinking and monoculture type of operating and operating in silos, right? So nature doesn't operate in silos. Nature is integrated. Everything everything
3: else. What makes it really viable for the PHA to be able to return to these regenerative approaches to farming is water, the aquifer beneath their feet. In the 2020 Cape High Court ruling, the judge found that neither the city nor the province had paid proper attention to what impact urban development would have on the Cape Flats aquifer. The city's own report about its vital importance had been ignored, one of the numerous studies done on the PHA over the years. But what exactly is an aquifer? Zayan explained it to me.
2: At the foot of Table Mountain now as it stands, five million years later, when it's not an island anymore, there is a runoff in the mountain. So there's a set, you know, because of that genetic sandstone geology, the water is able to kind of run flat down into the flats, which is, you know, you could also call prairies kind of things, you know, the large landscape of flat land. This is here that you'll find they're all in aquifers. So there's not just one, you know, there's quite a few. And there's large groups of them. There's one right beneath the Cape Flats aquifer. You know, like the Philippi horticultural area as well. But these aquifers are born millennia ago also and millions of years. And they're just underground storage systems of water. So water, you must understand. We think of it and we talk about water as if water is these days, a commodity, right? But almost as if there's more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's life. As if water is not alive.
1: Well, you know, um, these old farmer so saying that the further you move away from Table Mountain, the less water we have far. And we now know through our work over the last seven, eight years, we have two aquifer seminars. We understand the area much better. And what makes the area very unique is in its soil sits an aquifer. And this aquifer makes the area drought proof. And this aquifer makes our area the highest production period per hectare in the country in terms of vegetable production. Our area is so important because it is the aquifer recharge zone of the Cape Flats aquifer. In other words, our area because it's not paved over. All the rain and stormwater that flows in our area sinks into the soil, which recharges annually the aquifer in the soil. Now, in the city, where does your stormwater go? That falls on your roof, down the road, uh, down the pipe, into the road, down a drain, and it goes all the way out to sea. That's been the history of stormwater engineering that was imported from the West, which is totally against how rainwater ought to flow. It ought to flow openly into wetlands into reservoirs into lakes into rivers into lakes and needs to sink into the soil so that you recharge your aquifer have been saying as a campaign that we need to close the water loop. So we have lots of water available. We have water, wastewater, we have stormwater. We have only been using and recycling 7% of our water. So our area is is critical in the fact that we can close the water cycle when our wastewater is cleaned up to agricultural grade. Then it's injected into the aquifer. And the, the soil in the aquifer further cleans this water and we're bringing the water out on the other side, we are injecting recycled water, and our area is open so that the area can hold more water in its soil from falling out of the sky. We also know that by extracting water out of the aquifer, we can supply the city out of our area via 250 boreholes, which the city is busy putting in at the moment, Uh, We can supply the city with up to a third of its potable water needs. A third. The aquifer is so huge. Its water-holding capacity is equal to the five dams supplying the city today. And so what we are doing is we are trying to revive our traditional farming knowledge and practices to farm in a way that's sensitive to the aquifer and the environment and the only way that we feel we can do that is through promoting and developing the small-scale farming in our area and that too is a, a way for us to see how we as emerging farmers to where more of us can have access to land and access to economically viable livelihoods. <laughs>
3: It's the struggle for food sovereignty. It's the struggle for water sovereignty. And then within those, it's then also a struggle for land sovereignty, especially for the communities that you are in and work with.
1: We actually rely like that, you know, the person who is not present in the conversation about protecting our land is actually the consumers who are eating our food. And so we developed a whole narrative around Do you know where your food comes from? And we use that to educate and create awareness in the city with all kinds of communities, from Kailicha to Constantia, to say to them, do you know where your food comes from? And do you know what happens there? It directly impacts you.
0: It was the sense of community that created what you could call the fourth stage of the PHA's food and farming campaign. As the COVID-19 pandemic hit the country and hit the Cape Flats especially hard, serving the community brought new meaning for Nazir.
1: Farmers had been very, very busy over the lockdown period because farming and farmers are essential service, right? We never stopped working. But in our area, because it has multiple complexities, so we have farm workers who are living on farms, who are working, but they also ended up supporting a whole bunch of people who have been affected by the lockdown, who couldn't go to work. And so we had lots of families were at home, and they were helping each other. And we understood that this is going to be a huge burden on our communities, who are already suffering more than 50% unemployment in our area. And so our campaign, the women in our campaign decided that we will have to do something. And then we came up with this idea of how to feed a farming community of over 1,800 families, roughly over 6,000 individuals under the lockdown and we developed a family food basket with the help of a chef who designed the contents of the basket with high protein and low carbs and low sugar to make sure we give the right amount of food to the communities and that's what we did in the first month of the lockdown. Spent um, the better part of the month doing that. We ended up supplying 58 tons of food we packed over 6,000 parcels of food. You know, we had such an amazing response from ordinary people who just donated to their fund. We collected almost a million rand, and we delivered all that food out in the May months. Yes. And so it was a huge opportunity for us to understand our community much better. It was an opportunity for us to bridge the gap between the hands and the have It was an opportunity for us to support local community leadership through distributing the food and where the leadership was lacking, we could help build leadership.
3: That wasn't the only realisation that the lockdown brought.
1: The crisis has led people to understand that actually there's a huge problem with the way our food is being delivered to us. There's a huge problem with how the food is being grown, how the food travels, how fire travels, and the condition of farmers, condition of farm workers, and the condition of the land. And a lot of people are actually now Trying to grow some food of their own um, in their backyards, their front yards, their ships, and so on. And there's an amazing movement happening across the city around growing food, you know. And so that, again, is something that we have been speaking about this for a long, long time, you know. But the ears weren't receptive for that message. (laughs) You know, it's this crisis that made these ears receptive to that message now.
3: So the area known as Cape Town's food basket was able to create the family basket when it was needed most.
1: The farmers are more in debt now than before, and more people are starving today than before. So really, the old traditional systems have stood the test of time, and we are trying to revive that and see how that can help us in a time of climate change, of hunger, and see how that can help us achieve the outcomes that we're looking for.
0: What amazing and inspiring work. One just wonders when the developers and the state are going to catch on.
3: Exactly. I asked Nazir if he had a message he wanted to share before he said goodbye.
1: How can we, as ordinary people, take part in combating climate change? Now we know climate change is about excess of CO2 in the atmosphere. Now how can we all contribute to lessen that. We have to lessen our carbon footprint. Locally produced food is very important. Try to source locally produced food as far as possible. How can we strengthen and shorten the food supply chain? The shorter the food supply chain is the fresher your food, the more affordable the food, and the less impact that food will have on the climate in terms of carbon miles and CO2 into the atmosphere. That's the one thing. And in that thinking, we have to think about, as a city, and all cities that think about this, how can we protect our best agricultural land around the city and prevent urban sprawl from happening over that land? Because we know that land is important to supply us with ecosystem services, our short food supply chain, and that takes care of our hunger in the city. So this is not a lesson only for Cape Town, but it also the, rest of the
0: country as well. Well, the next time I'm in Cape Town, I know where I'm going to buy my fresh produce. And
3: we've heard from Zayan and her work as a seed librarian in an earlier episode.
0: We also have another water hero from Cape Town, a chemical engineer called Dr. Dylan Randall. And you'll never guess what he's doing to recycle water.
1: So the way we collect the urine is in a what we call a fertilizer-producing urinal. The, the prototype we have at the moment is very simple. It consists of a removable 25-litre container with a funnel attached to the top, so it's like a screw-on funnel to which the user would pee into and then you collect the urine in the container.
0: Unbelievably, he is spearheading Cape Town's initiative to turn urine into fertilizer.
3: I had a great time chatting with him. but that's a story for another episode. I'm Sigwethlani Pamudi. This was for Water for Life,
0: and I'm Gogule Tumchungo. Find us on social media at For Water for Life and share your water stories using the hashtag Listen to the Water. Because if you do, it can change your life. From the JoJo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of For Water for Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters, or other water solutions, JoJo has the product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.today and find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest product news and water related content.